here's somebody that was fundamental at that time in the progress of this disruptive technology. Steve Williams, otherwise known as Spaz Williams, worked in a tiny windowless room that was called The Pit. Lucasfilm's Industrial Light and Magic. This was where Spaz and his cohorts created breakthrough animation. He happened to be the right guy at the right time, at the right place. Before Steve, this stuff couldn't have been done. It was not biotechnology that brought the dinosaurs to life in Jurassic Park. Animator Steve Williams used a computer to bring the T-Rex to life. For almost 75 years, the technology and the techniques were pretty much the same. Three key projects ultimately had the greatest impact. The Abyss, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park. Joining us via Zoom today is another director that has their film featured as part of the Edmonton International Film Festival. We are speaking with Scott Lebrecht, director and also producer of the documentary film Jurassic Punk. It's going to be screening on Saturday, September 24th at 6.30 p.m. at the Landmark City Center Cinema, uh, Cinemas. And uh, Scott, here's the bonus. So why we love film festivals, because Scott is actually going to be in the house in Edmonton talking to you, the audience, after the film. And I feel like this is going to be one that's going to create a really positive conversation here. Uh, Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Christian. It's great to be here. All right. So the focus of this, people are like, did he say Jurassic Punk or Jurassic Park? I'm like... <laughs> Scott is very smart. This is by design because this film is about Steve Spaz Williams, who is a pioneer in computer animation. Uh, and of course, the title alludes to his most uh, recognizable digital creations. Uh, but he's had so many. So I don't know. Maybe that's just the pinnacle because it was the biggest. But this film is so much more than just a behind the scenes doc of Steve and all the work that he did. Maybe let's give uh, the audience a little bit more context, if you could, Scott, about Jurassic Punk. Well, it's definitely something that I've been carrying with me for a long time. Steve and I worked together at ILM uh, way back in 1995. We met and uh, became friends, but he was mainly my boss back then. Um, I did was doing storyboards and uh, a lot of the art direction stuff for commercials he was doing, as well as some, some of the movies that he was visual effects supervisor on. Uh, but we stayed friends uh, over the next 20, 30 years now. Um, and Back then in the 90s, I was just an intern and sort of surprised to hear and learn maybe all the things about the behind the scenes that doesn't really get reported to the press or you don't really read in Cinefix magazine or see on the, you know, the making of DVD. And so th there's always there's like the story that's inside when you actually work at the place that about how things went down. And there's the story that maybe gets told publicly um and so uh i was always surprised at just how much the uh the story of of a sort of not the not the easiest process for a lot of the the workers and people like steve in terms of uh, being new in the field uh as computer graphics artists and how hard that was to be accepted at that time and be uh, taken taken seriously and how how hard it was to maybe uh, become a formidable presence at a place like ILM that was just killing it with um, traditional effects and 
winning Academy Award after Academy Award with their processes and how it was difficult for, say, the people in the model shop to be excited at the time about possibly a whole new tool coming in to change the way they work. And so I always knew that I wanted to someday tell this story and and then I you know went to film school and uh, sort of learned how to make movies and then here I am now you know so many years later uh, finally telling the story I kind of envisioned back in the 90s. Yeah, I mean it is an interesting film that because it, it seems like Steve is like as an audience you really fall in love with him because you love just the nature of him, how brutally honest he is, how incredibly creative he is. He ends up kind of being a polarizing figure to other people that are around him, though, right? But, I mean, clearly he's made dip connections with people, yourself and others that he's worked with that have stuck with him, too. So I find that this is the kind of film that as much as you see that he is maybe if you pay close enough attention, he's been portrayed as some kind of like, you know, digital effects cowboy, right? I mean, clearly it's his spirit and creativity that really attract the audience. So how did you approach capturing this true essence of him? Because I mean, his background story kind of does it for you, but it's it's not just enough for you to be like, oh, here's some old footage of him. Here's some interview talking head stuff of the other people. How did you find the capture the essence of him in Jurassic Punk? He and I have a, have a, a really close relationship and we you know at first when we were shooting it was just ridiculously fun to just go and put the camera on him and let him tell his story and so it was it was just it was just so fun to go visit him and with the camera and just film him being himself and talking the way he talks about his life and and everything that he's experienced that and and then it became work and it became uh emotional for him because uh, I kept asking him deeper and deeper questions to try and understand more and help the audience understand more and for myself to understand more, uh, even as his friend about, you know, say uh, the 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 feel what it feels like to be him and what it feels like to have done the things he's done. I was always uh, kind of fascinated with the idea of I'm 50 now and, and 51 and the idea of uh, life sort of everyone's life sort of having a kind of a bell curve to it and there's the top of the curve and and what do you do with the rest of your life after the you hit the top of that curve and when you're talking about somebody like steve williams who's who was a part of a time that literally only happens maybe once every hundred years and to then know that like you have the rest of your life to live looking back at that that moment that the whole world changed how do you live with that how do you like live out the rest of your life and find new challenges and do new things and so i think it's something that's an incredibly difficult thing for us you know say quote unquote normal people to relate to because you just so few people have that experience of being at a time and a place like that uh and so i feel like there is a thing about looking back at the past and looking back uh, for a long portion of your life and just kind of thinking about uh, this time when uh, you were at the top of your game and how, what are the challenges in that? And, um, and how do you, how do you keep going? So, yeah, I think the film explores a lot of those kinds of things. 
We're speaking today with Scott Librecht. We're discussing the film uh, Jurassic Punk. It's going to be screened as part of the Edmonton International Film Festival, Saturday, September 24th at 6.30 p.m. You can get your tickets at the theater or you can get them online at edmontonfilmfest.com. And of course, like the majority of all the screenings, it's happening at the landmark City Center Cinemas downtown. I found what was kind of interesting here is like, I love all the the background on Steve because he was somebody who I kind of knew of, but only from the point where he started really kind of making films that were having an impact, right? So all that background about like, honestly, I was ignorant to the fact that he was from Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I knew Cameron was. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm like, but it seemed like another one of those people where I'm just like, oh, maybe he just didn't seem like that. I mean, he he almost seems like he was born to be that kind of like, you know, American cowboy, but he just loves the Maple Leafs, I guess, a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, like, he's he's a Toronto. He's, yeah. from, he's from Toronto, yeah. Like, I love all those reveals. And another thing that I think people might be surprised to hear about, too, is that there's this, at the time of the Abyss T2, and particularly with Jurassic Park, there's a real push-pull between practical and digital and this being kind of at the core of the cinematic revolution at the time. And I guess what was kind of disappointing is when you hear about how people were just very hesitant to make that change, to really truly embrace that change on the level they needed to. And the fact that Steve was the core central figure of pushing the boundaries of that. Um, did it take some effort to kind of get people to reflect on that time, honestly, who were kind of more, uh, connected to the practical world and weren't really accustomed or ready to ride that digital revolution? Or did you feel like they were ready to talk, you know, 25, 30 years later? Uh, I think everyone I interviewed is incredibly humble people. And they're just, they're, they're very much just telling it like it is and how, how, what happened when it happened. They're not afraid to admit that, you know, we didn't think it could work. And then and then it ended up working and everything changed and I had to adapt and all that stuff. And so when I would ask the questions about what it was like to see for them to be seeing the computer, a computer being used to create the images that it was creating back then, almost all the time, I just get explanations of of wonder, being stunned, being shocked. Uh, and I think the reason why is because when you look at the late 80s computer graphics that were happening and they were just they just weren't they, they were they just weren't realistic looking yet. And and no one was there wasn't a, con, a convergence of people and tools yet to really and, and in a project that would actually call for it. And have the the financial backing for it, and then a place like ILM that would have the financial backing, the desire to take the risks that were being taken back then. Uh, so it was a it was a really special time of everything. Kind of it was kind of a perfect storm of people and uh, tools, and um, and I but I think like there was an incredible amount of uh, faith and trust being put in people that they can do what they're saying they can do because no one had done this stuff before. No one had really pulled it off before. And it's just amazing to me every time I think about what the, the kind of courage it took for everyone involved at that point uh, to, to let people like Steve and Mark DePay 
Steve Williams in particular, um, say, do the things that, you know, and, and like you're saying, you know, he, he can be a boisterous kind of fellow. So uh, sometimes you don't, it's harder to be like, oh, you know, he's, he sounds so confident, but can he really do it? And it's like, and it's really hard to explain at that point. Uh, uh, you know, he could confidently tell them exactly how he could do it technically, but no one's going to, but it's going to be like, he's speaking a different language. They wouldn't, nobody could speak the language of what they were doing back then, except them. And so, so it was, it was, it, it makes total sense that it was the big, the big struggle that it was to push it through uh, because it was just, nobody really, really understood how they were doing what they were doing, uh, except the people that were doing it. So they had to just prove it. They had to keep proving it and doing doing experimentation and tests until they were able to get closer and closer to making these images that were considered photorealistic. It was it was uh, it was not easy for for people to go to just say say yeah let's let's start making things in the computer. It was it was very much like why would we do that? I haven't seen anything that looks real yet in the computer. Why would we think we could even do that in the computer? And so that that was that was what was happening at that time that I think a lot of people, especially young people today, don't really un maybe understand that there was a time when computers were just like absolutely the last thing on anybody's mind when it came to making visual effects. Before I really kind of watched the film and before I kind of started to dig a little bit deeper and kind of look into like what your own background is, even and even throughout this conversation, I feel like like in many ways you were the perfect person to make this film. I don't know that if you don't have somebody who is probably close with Steve that you, if you don't have somebody who's worked with him, if you don't have somebody that kind of has that uh, understanding of him and maybe that, that relationship that allows him allows you to kind of break down some of those walls that he's been putting up probably for, for decades, maybe his own, his entire life. I don't know that you were the right person to kind of, start to peel back those layers in a way that shows the humanity behind him and, and how tough the industry can be sometimes. Did you kind of feel like that? Or did you feel like this is somebody's story who needs to be told? And, you know, whether it's me or somebody else, it's just got to happen. Cause I felt like you had the right touch for what needed to be told about, about a story, about Steve's story. I felt that way while I was making the film and sort of, even before I made the film, I kind of realized that the story was never going to be told properly in my mind, properly by someone who wasn't there, who didn't work there, who didn't know the people and who didn't know Steve personally. And who also didn't have Steve's trust. All that stuff was critical because I know who I should call for an interview and who was there and who was not there. And, and those are the people I want to talk to. And so when you're, if you're just sort of a filmmaker who wasn't there and you're, you've been assigned the task of telling the story of what happened, you know, on Jurassic Park, you're going to be sort of at the mercy of what anyone tells you in the business or, or if you ring up ILM or, or talk to anyone, you're going to, you're, they're going to, they can basically point you in any direction and you're going to assume that they're telling you the right place and the right people to talk to. And so I think like, I think it is kind of a kind of, it was important, I think, for this story to be told to me and with the sort of warts and all nature of it, 
uh, by someone who kind of knew the people and knows the place and and knows him as well as I know him. And also, I think it was it, it helps to just sort of have some distance from it too, and to have that have been, to have it really be in my past, and to be able to to because you know when you do a sort of tell all story like this, you know there's a lot of people who wouldn't talk to me because they just know that I'm going to want to talk about things like politics and interpersonal relationships and personal relationships. And, and when you're, when you're talking about a business where you're trying to stay employed and keep working and not piss anyone off, you, you don't want to talk about that shit. And that's, and not, I made it very clear to everyone that that was going to be my focus and that that's what I wanted to talk about. And that I wasn't trying to make a process film about how, the dinosaurs were made or how the t-1000 was made in terminator 2 i wanted to talk about who did it what it was like to do it for them and you know what what was the 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 personal struggles the political struggles and the sort of personal toll that it may be that these this time and this work takes on people that's really my goal with with these kinds of films about the industry about visual effects industry and animation and hollywood in general is just sort of uncovering the the what you can call the human toll of this work and how it's really easy for passionate uh, artists to in a way naively give too much of themselves to an industry to an industry and and when you say the word industry it's like yeah it's gonna it's a machine and it's going to do with you what it's done with everyone before you I, I think in a way I, I wanted to make a bit of a, a cautionary tale for uh, for anyone sort of thinking that if they do good work, that they'll be rewarded or if they do good work, they'll be recognized. That's not really the way it works. That's only one part of it. I think that's what also makes the film really bold is how personal it is, but also how it kind of peels back the layers of some of these carefully crafted uh people that studios or the effects companies have put forward to be like well here's your identifiable figure when there are so many more people behind what's going on like all you have to do is watch you know the six minutes of credits on any big effects film that you watch anytime if you decide to stick around in the theater I get that. I think Marvel's the only one that's cracked that nut. <laughs> but, but do you know what I mean? Like you just, it's almost like we're kind of to blame sometimes because like, oh, we just want to be able to like focus on that one person, right? Like there's so many more things going on, but what does Marvel talk about? They talk about Kevin Feige in the same way that I think in this film too shows that there's some people who are kind of like they're out front because that's easily marketable in some ways. And then there are so many people like whether it's, you know, you, Steve, or the hundreds and thousands others who have kind of done that work don't necessarily get that shine because mm -hmm. you got to have one or two people up front taking it. And I don't know if that's the case all the time. That's one thing that kind of resonated for me is that I love that you you kind of humanized it to go beyond just the same talking heads that we were seeing all the time. I do think that um, here's the thing. It's one thing these days when the supervisors of a big Marvel movie, the visual effects supervisors came up with computers and using computers and being in the trenches and creating shots with computers and then going up through the ranks to become a visual effects supervisor. 
I think the, the hardest thing about Steve's story is that the people sort of that were in the hierarchy that were above him did not have that experience. And yet we're, we're in the position of supervising him. And so you can, you can kind of imagine how frustrating it might have been to just have it be so obvious that the person who's kind of your boss um, might not, not really have any, any idea how you're doing what you're doing. And it's just, and, but it's not normal. And so that's one of the things I kind of wanted to, I hope I made clear in the film is that, is that this time, 1993, and that time of like 88 to 93 was the, was a weird time because you did not have that typically in these situations. What you had was supervisors who had already done all the work that they were basically supervising others to do. They had already been that person taking orders. They had already been that person in the trenches and learning how to do it. It's kind of a funny thing to like, to like consider how strange it must have been to know that that you kind of had this magic in your pocket that was like this computer and this knowledge of how to do what they did it was kind of magic at the time it was kind of something that people were just like how the fuck did you do that and and no one could really explain it where people could understand it Jody Duncan, I interviewed, she's a, um, the editor of uh, Cinefix magazine, and she spent her whole life interviewing people about how they did the effects they did. And, uh, and she said she had a huge learning curve in trying to just interview these guys who were changing the way that this work was being done, uh, just to know how to ask questions. It's it's kind of mind blowing when you think about it. When you think about what that time was like and how fast things were changing. Absolutely, I I love that you say there is a certain level of magic to it because uh, there's a beautiful section in the film where uh, you kind of reference all the films that maybe didn't have that magic, <laughs> and we get to see what it looks like when somebody who's just trying to figure it out or is not proficient or maybe doesn't have the money to really complete it. Uh, what it looks like. Hey, we're we're getting short on time here. I do want to talk a little bit about, because we talked about this before, I think a really good companion piece in some ways that people should check out is what you were talking about before was Life After Pi. But I also mm-hmm. want to kind of make that part of the question too, uh, a feature film that you did before that you wrote and directed to Midnight Sun in 2011. Talk to me a little bit about your journey as a director, you think, over about the last you know decade or so from something like Midnight Sun to today where you're doing Jurassic Punk. How do you think you've evolved as a filmmaker and given us a little bit for so people will know about uh, life after Pi as well? You know, I went to film school and really learned how to work with actors and make scripted dramas and, and uh, you know, real movies. And uh, I never imagined that I'd be making documentaries someday, but it, it started to become something I was interested, I became interested in when I was working at Rhythm and Hughes. And so I, I made Midnight Sun out of uh, film school, out of AFI. And it was fine. It was a it was a low budget horror film that uh, actually sold. And I ma- I actually paid back people who gave me money, which was an incredible feat for an, any independent filmmaker. And then after that, I was, I was doing work for uh, Rhythm and Hughes. I was working there as an art director. And while I was there, 
the company started to go under and started to go bankrupt. My boss at the time, Mike Meeker, he was the creative director of Rhythm and Hughes. He, he turned to me and he's like, aren't you a filmmaker? And I'm like, no. And he's, and he's like, yes, you are. Uh, we have cameras. We need to start interviewing people. You know, this is an incredible, this is, this moment needs to be documented. And I was like, okay. And so I kind of begrudgingly was like, okay, well, let's, let's film some people talking. And then it kind of, I started to realize that there was an incredible story unfolding while I was at Rhythm and Hughes. They were literally winning the Academy Award for Life of Pi and going bankrupt at the same time. And it was this, this incredible moment where people really had nothing to lose. And so they were talking all about the experience of working their whole lives at this company and having it all uh, go away. Um, and the rugby pulled out from under them in a way. And at that point, I realized there was sort of some education that could happen here for the rest of the world in terms of how this visual effects process works and who these people are behind it and how the struggles of the companies uh trying to stay afloat while uh, everything's constantly changing with budget and schedule. And so anyway, the, the movie is, is a short film. It's on YouTube. It's called Life After Pi, but it is, it is a good, uh, uh, my first sort of foray, foray into documentary and trying to uh, help people understand, say, the ins and outs of the industry of a, of a kind of what can be a mysterious industry like visual effects. Well, the film we've been talking about is Jurassic Punk, and we've been talking to Scott Lebrecht, director, producer of said film. It's a fantastic documentary. Look, even if you're just like, oh, clearly you've seen Jurassic Park. Look, I'm going to tell you something. Scott, I saw it like two weeks ago at our like art house theater. It was their opening film of the, the season, right? And the theater was packed, and pretty much everybody had seen it before, except for some, maybe some kids. And people loved it. And it's and here's the other thing that's crazy. I'm listening to the radio today, sports talk radio, nonetheless. And they're like, yeah, Jurassic Park, somehow they got to it. And they're like, the effects still hold up. It's crazy. I mean, it's just yeah. like talking about the actual uh, footprint it left on people's lives uh, mm -hmm. and their memories is pretty incredible. And of yeah. course, Steve Spad William is a huge part of it. It wouldn't have looked the way it did if it was not for him and the inspiration that he had and the genius that he carries. Uh, if you want to see a documentary film about him, I suggest you do. It's Jurassic Punk, Saturday, September 24th at 6.30 p.m., Landmark City Center Cinemas. And also, of course, Scott will be there to do a Q&A after. And uh, who knows, there could be another voice in this interview that might be there as well, asking mm -hmm. questions to Scott. Yes. It could be me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, thank you so much. If there's anything you want to shamelessly promote or tell people where to go online to find out more about the film, please feel free to do so. Okay. Well, the film's going to be released uh, through Gravitas Ventures in December. December 16th is a big day. So I'm not sure which cities, but there is going to be a theatrical release, three city theatrical release, as well as being on VOD and various platforms. I haven't got that information yet. Maybe I will by Saturday and I can tell the audience there. But uh, I'm looking forward to uh, the festival and meeting you for sure. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. And uh, thank you especially for the film. Okay. Thanks, Christian. If you want to stay in the industry, you got to play the game. Steve didn't play that game. The parties far out of control. I was suspended twice. <laughs> he was a rebel. 
Steve said, why don't we just build all the dinosaurs in computer graphics? He knew the time was right. And I think other people was like, whoa, no, we're not going into this whole new realm. I just believe we could do it. But actually having to prove it, that was the challenge. I don't know that anybody else could have modeled those dinosaurs. I don't know that we would have even tried. There were a lot of people pissed off at me because of my arrogance. I shot my mouth off a lot. This is unfortunately what's happening. My career blew up. I've never been an adult. I kind of wish that every day was a Saturday morning cartoon, but it's not. <laughs>